Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Today we're going to be talking about tax and non-DOMs. Now, if you live in a country and enjoy all the benefits of living there, shouldn't you be taxed the same as everybody else? It seems a pretty simple principle, but for some reason it's one the British system doesn't seem to regard as sacrosanct. Some individuals are allowed both to live here as if they were normal residents, but taxed in some respects as if they were resident abroad, and they're called non-DOMs. This has been going on forever, but it's become politically toxic in recent years, partly because so many oligarchs, investment bankers and others took advantage of it. And now it's popped up again around the recent tax rises that Boris Johnson's government announced, which took effect earlier in April. At the centre of the row was Chancellor Rishi Sunak, whose wife Akshata Murthy, daughter of a billionaire Indian businessman, has non-DOM status. It's also since come out that the health secretary, Sajid Javid, also has the same status and took it when he was an investment banker at Deutsche Bank before becoming an MP. That's despite him being born, according to Wikipedia, in Rochdale. This whole row doesn't seem to be going away, and Labour has now announced that it will scrap non-DOM status if it gets into power. But there are lots of questions here. Why has this anomaly lasted so long? How does it work? And is there any argument for having special tax treatments in the first place? So we thought we'd try to unpick some of these issues with the help of Dan Needle, the former head of tax at Clifford Chance, who's leaving his practice today and heading off to a new mystery role, which he doesn't want to talk about at the moment. But anyway, welcome, Dan. Hi. It's a big, messy, complex area. And maybe the biggest reason that we still have the domicile rules is that its messiness and complexity has put anyone else from scrapping it for the last 20 or 30 years. That is an interesting place to start. So I seem to remember we were talking about reforming these rules. Like Gordon Brown talked about reviewing them in just after the millennium. George Osborne promised to get rid of it in 2007. That's 15 years ago. Yet it's still around. So why has this whole system proved so difficult to reform? That is a great question, but I'm going to do the irritating lawyer thing of not answering it. Instead, <laughs> say, we need to start at the beginning. And if we really want to seriously consider reforming it completely or doing away with it, which I think is a better route, we do need to step back and ask ourselves what precisely it is and what precisely it does. That's a good place to start. So tell us a bit about what it is that a non-domicile is, how you get to be one, and what domicile is. Okay, residence is easy these days. If you spend 90 days in the UK in the course of a tax year, you are probably resident here. And if you don't, you're probably not. The three of us, undoubtedly, we're resident here. That means that we're subject to UK tax on our worldwide income and gains. But non-DOMs are resident here as well. They spend 90 days a year or more, potentially all of the time here, but they have something else which we can come to in a bit. The fundamental tax concept, which every country has, is residence. If you're resident in a country, you're taxed on your worldwide income and gains in that country. And if you're not, you're not. So let's imagine, Jonathan, that you receive a French dividend of a thousand euros. You'll pay French withholding tax on that of 15%. You'll then 
be subject to UK tax on that, top rate of 39.35%. You get credit for the French tax. So of that €1,000 dividend, you'll pay overall tax of €400 and keep the remaining 600 So a little bit of French tax, and because you're a UK resident, UK tax on top. You pay that, and a French person living here also pays that. That's the base case. So how does it differ for a non-DOM? And how does a non-DOM get their different special status? So the simple case of a non-DOM is someone is born in France, they come here, they're going to be here a few years, and then go back to France. Their domicile of origin, as we call it, is France, because that's where they were born. And that hasn't been displaced by a domicile of choice. They haven't said, I love the UK so much, I'm going to be here forever. If they did, they'd cease to be a non-DOM. Till they do that, they're French domicile. So at that point, they're a non-DOM. There's a lot of them in the UK. Most of them have the same tax treatment as you and me. They're still subject to UK tax on their worldwide income and gains. But they have another option. And that option is to claim what's called the remittance basis. Take that same dividend. If they receive it in the UK, they have the same tax result that you or I would. So 15% French withholding tax and about 25% UK tax on top of that. But they have the option to keep the money outside the UK. So have the French dividend paid into a French bank account. If they do that, they still pay the 15% French withholding tax, but they have no UK tax on top. Even better, forget investing in France, invest in something offshore where there's no tax, and then they'll have no UK tax on top of that, no tax. It's called the remittance basis, because if they then bring that money into the UK, they are taxed on it. But as long as they keep it outside the UK. Okay, so Rishi Sunak and his wife, Akshata Murthy, She's still a non-dom, I think, but she's not going to be a remittance basis non-dom. So she's going to be taxed. But is she really coming onshore completely or is there something else going on here? She is not. So she says she's now taxed on her worldwide income. But the Independent reported that the Sunaks had created an offshore trust. And if she had put her Indian shares and other offshore property into an offshore trust then dividends she receives from it aren't hers at all. You mean, sorry, the dividends that go into the trust? Yes, they're not hers. Yes. And so her promise that she's subject to UK tax on her foreign income is only half the story because it begs the question, well, hang on, is this your income or have you cleverly made it not your income? Let's just home in on the remittance basis for a second. So when you claim the remittance basis, I'm a non-dom, I've arrived from... Kazakhstan, wherever. I'm a non-dom and I get my first tax return. I said, I am a non-dom. And then I look and I see there's this box. It says remittance basis. Would you like it or not? What do I get if I do tick the box remittance basis? How am I being treated differently? What taxes am I no longer going to be hit for? You're no longer subject to any UK tax on your non-UK property. So income and gains you make outside the UK and you keep outside the UK aren't taxed in the UK. So I will get taxed if I work in the UK and I'm paid in the UK. Yes. But I won't get taxed on any property, assets or income I make outside the UK or capital gains, as long as that money remains firmly out of my pores. Presumably, the sort of people who want to tick the remittance box are people who look at their pile of assets in Kazakhstan, France, wherever, and go, well, goodness me, I'm going to save millions if I can keep this out of the hands of the tax man. 
there's probably three categories of people. A normal middle class person who has a bit of savings in Kazakhstan, that their <laughs> life's going to be more complicated if they're paying tax here on some Kazakh savings product that has no equivalent here. First category. Second category, it saves them money, maybe a moderately significant amount of money. Third category, you're incredibly wealthy. You're affairs are all over the world in a bunch of tax havens with very little tax on them. And if you're a UK resident non-DOM, you will therefore pay no tax at all on your foreign income. I see. But your life might become very complicated if you have to disclose all of this stuff to the UK tax man by not ticking the non-remittance basis. Those not on video can't see the tiny violin I'm currently playing. (laughs) What proportion do you think of non-DOMs are what we could describe in shorthand as Russian oligarchs? You know, is it 50%, 5%, 1%? I've no idea. Do you have any idea? It's not what proportion of non-DOMs, because remember, there's millions of non-DOMs. It's what proportion of those claiming the remittance basis. And how many is that, Dan? The, The number claiming the remittance basis is a few tens of thousand. After seven years, you have to pay the remittance basis charge to stay in the UK. And so if you want to look at people who have been here for more than a short time, you look at those paying the charge. That's currently only 2,000 individuals. When you say what proportion of those are Russian oligarchs, it could be 1%. It's not some minuscule number that renders the question irrelevant. So 2,000 doesn't sound like a huge number to me. It's not a huge number. If this is causing such... A huge amount of political heat as it is, and there are relatively small numbers of people doing it. What's the argument for keeping it? The arguments for keeping the current system are weak. This concept of domicile is 250 years old and shows it. It's hard to define, it's easily manipulated, you can inherit it from your father. Forget it, replace it with a nice simple test that's on a flowchart a monkey can follow. No reason not to do that. And over the past few weeks, I've been talking to lots of advisors, consultants, lawyers, accountants, QCs. Not one has defended that domicile concept. The definition is hopeless. And that's the thing which goes right back to the dawn of income tax, the reign of George III, when the government essentially exempted people in the colonies from paying income tax. Exactly. And it lets you spend a lot of time in the UK, but say that, oh, I actually plan to retire abroad at some point. I seem to remember Stuart Gulliver, who was at one point the chief executive of HSBC, himself was revealed to be a non-dom. And the argument was that he had purchased a plot of ground in a cemetery in Hong Kong, where he proposed to be buried. And that basically entitled him to spend his entire life here. (laughs) (laughs) So that could easily be scrapped. That doesn't sound like a very difficult thing to do. So the second point is... So the second point is the length of time you get the benefit for. 15 years is a long time. We we don't need to be that generous. A long time in finance, yes, quite. You don't want to subject someone fully to UK tax the second they come here because it will put some people off, particularly anyone with complicated affairs. It's a particular issue because that first year you come here, you're probably still resident to the country you're coming from. And to be resident in two different countries in one year is a nightmare. Yeah, no, I understand that. And also we want to encourage talented, younger highly paid people to come and work here because we think it's worth our while to have them. So that's one reason to encourage them. So you have a shorter timescale. And your third point? Third point is the remittance rule is 
daft. The idea, we'll exempt you from tax, but don't bring the money here. Don't invest the money in the UK. What a weird incentive to create. But again, that seems to be something which is relatively straightforward to change. Well, so each of those three points that you've made could, well, how would you could easily how would you, be changed. How would you change it? Well, you change so that you are taxed on your worldwide income, which is what happens in many other countries. So you, you effectively just, that's just getting rid of it. Is that right? I wouldn't do that. What I'd do, I'd make it more generous and simpler but for a limited amount of time. I'd say for two years, if you're coming to the UK for the first time, you've never been resident here before, for the first two years you're resident in the UK, we will give you a complete exemption on your worldwide income and gains and you're free to bring it here. So again, that and, seems and you pretty say, straightforward. Yeah. And you say, and you say you exempt it, so they wouldn't even have to say what it was. They could just, it would be like the existing arrangement. Correct. What you might want to do, you might want to put a cap on this benefit. You might want to say, if you're sheltering more than a million of income or gains, then you don't get this juicy exemption. Yeah, or even five million. Or even I mean, five million. Something to stop it being abused by the mega wealthy who might be able to hop from country to country, picking off exemptions. Quite. I come back to my point that those three recommendations of yours seem quite straightforward, relatively easy to do. Even I can understand them. And it would make a big difference to the scale of the problem, wouldn't it? I'm going to be a lawyer and give you two answers. Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> How comforting. <laughs> yeah. If this is all you do, you won't change much. Because before you do it, non-doms who want to play games will put all of their assets in what's called an excluded property trust an offshore trust. Once they've done that, then no matter what changes you make to the domicile rules, they won't be taxed on their offshore income. So this change has to be accompanied by a major reform to the taxation of trusts. Yeah. That'll now, ensure now that nothing worried. happens. Now you've got him worried. Well, it, it, it just won't happen. You know, it's just too complicated. This is great because in, in two minutes, you, you've given us the history of the non-dom rules in the last 20 years, starting with confusion, then enthusiasm for change, then complete pessimism at the process. No, no, I think you've got to look at it going forward rather than trying to say, oh, well, we must make it watertight from day one. No, you, what you say to them is two things. You say, right, we're going to tax you fully on your UK income going forward, and we're going to tax your trust too. But there's a there's a nice bit of this, which you, the wealthy non-dom, are going to love, which is all that money you've had to keep outside the UK and couldn't bring into the UK without a horrible tax result, you can now bring it back here. So you're giving them a bitter pill to swallow, but with a big dollop of sugar as well. It's a deal which many non-doms would take. I mean, I'm just thinking about the arguments. We've started off talking about the difficulty of making these reforms. And is it partly because there is this sense that there is some benefit, even though, as you've explained, the system perversely encourages you not to bring your money into the country? There is this perception that people in the city of London, people who are potentially investors in the UK economy, are potentially the sort of people who are non-doms. And if we take these privileges away from them, we will be cutting off our nose to spite our face. One of the reasons there hasn't been change is that the traditional Treasury view was that if you change it, they will leave. We're not talking about IT contractors, city lawyers, city bankers. We're talking about the, the mega rich, the residents of Knightsbridge, Harrods shoppers. They will leave. And why do they care so much about them? Yes, one answer is who cares? But, but the Treasury has historically cared. Right. And there has been a real view that we have lots of people living in the UK, not just for 7, 12, 15 years, but for essentially all their lives, who 
have large assets abroad and we want to keep them here, so we need to maintain this regime. This was the traditional Treasury view. However, it's no longer a defensible view because in 2017, we changed the rules. You couldn't be a non-DOM forever. We, we stopped it at year 15. And yet, Knightsbridge is still there. 10% of Knightsbridge residents are non-DOMs. We didn't see. <laughs> Jack Barclay is still selling Bentleys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the sky did not fall in. Surprise, surprise. Yes. Okay, I'm going to, I just want to ask a couple of questions. One is we mentioned Sajid Javid at the top. We talked a bit about domicile. How does a British politician working in the city like Sajid Javid get to flip in and out of non-DOM status for six years? That is an excellent question. And I've been discussing it with lots of experts in this area. And the answer? We'd love to know. So, <laughs> But hang on, are you <laughs> saying that expert? it is hard to understand how he could possibly have done it? Could he not have inherited it from his dad? Or something? Here's one way it could have worked. Okay, Javid is born in Rochdale. His father was born in Pakistan. We need to make one heroic assumption first, which is that his father intended to go back to Pakistan and so was still Pakistan domicile at the point Javid was born. Right. Yeah, it's a heroic assumption because <laughs> most immigrants to the UK from the subcontinent don't have that intention. The UK is their home. So we assume that, that, that his father remained domicile in Pakistan at the point Javid was born. He then needs to have continued to want to return to Pakistan until the point that Javid became 16. Because when you're a child, you have what's called a domicile of dependence. If his father on Javid's 14th birthday had said, well, I'm not returning to Pakistan, why on earth would I? My home is here. Then Javid's father would have had a domicile of choice of the UK and Javid would have inherited that. Right. So for this play to work, his father has to have continued to have a Pakistan domicile up to Javid being 16. Right. To me, that seems unlikely, but it's possible. Who knows? Right. Then, right. on age 16, <laughs> Javid gets the domicile of choice. Yeah. So at this point, the second heroic assumption happens. Javid has to think at age 16, yeah, okay, I've spent my life in Rochdale, but I really want to go to Pakistan and finish my life in Pakistan at some point. <laughs> yes. Again, that seems an unlikely thing for a 16-year-old in Rochdale to think. When his dad said, what do you want for your 16th birthday? He has to have said, the remittance basis. <laughs> yes, I want the remittance basis and I want to keep it. And he then has to have continued to have that as his expectation all the way through his early adult life. And even when he was a banker in the city, he has to continue to think, well, I think I'm actually going to finish my life in Pakistan. Now, right. now that is absolutely a theoretically possible thing to have yep. happened in the sense that it's theoretically possible there's a chocolate teacup or orbiting Mars. But it seems a bit of a stretch. We, we tactics can understand how that's a possibility. But the thing which is really confusing is in the interview with, I think it was the Sunday Times, the journalist wrote in passing that Javid when he was a non-dom, he didn't claim his domicile was in Pakistan. Oh, so the fairy gosh. story I've just told, ambitious as you've already seen, to bits. is actually not the answer. Right. But there's something else going on. And if you look at Javid's statement, there's a period between, I think, 96 and 2006, which yeah. glides over elegantly in the space of half a sentence. So who knows? The best guess of the people I've spoken to who know this area much better than I do is that after he went to Singapore and returned to the UK, he took the position that he'd go back to Singapore and he'd finish up in Singapore, and that's where he was domiciled, which is a convenient answer. The problem with it is Singapore doesn't let you just turn up and live there. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> it's quite an ambitious position to have taken, if that's what he took, but nobody knows. What this 
fairy story shows is how ill-suited the domicile concept is. It's complicated, as they say. Well, all of that <laughs> series of implausible events could, could happen today. None of those rules have been changed since. OK, Dan, we talked a lot about the weirdness of the UK domicile rules and the need to reform them. But what about other countries? Does anyone else have a system that's as weird and rococo as Britain? In a word, no. There's two unique things about the UK system, maybe three. So the first is this concept of domicile, which is so peculiar and easily manipulated. No one else has that. The second is the length of time we give the benefit for. 15 years is a long time. Very few countries are that long. And the third is the peculiarity that we punish you from investing in the UK. You have to keep your, your money outside the UK. So there's no real loss if we got rid of it in terms of somebody else saying, ah, now we can take all this business from the UK. But it tends to be the smaller countries that are really generous regimes. So somewhere like Malta, somewhere like Singapore, very generous. France, Germany, the US, Italy, nothing remotely close. The US actively punishes you from a tax perspective for moving there. So putting on your sort of predictor hat, basically what you've said to us is you've said... Reform is quite possible. The balance sheet of gains and losses is a little bit difficult to understand, but it's probably not going to be particularly disastrous. And the Treasury, which has historically thought we must have Kalust Gulbenkian and the like kind of living in Knightsbridge on the basis that they can constantly buy a new Rolls Royce every other year. We've called time on that because we've said, listen, Gulbenkian, you can be here for 15 years, but then it's the game's up. So... Do you think that reform is now possible? I mean, what's stopping us? We've had reform for 14 years, but how it works is this. Um, gosh, there's this loophole people are taking advantage of. The rules are a little bit too generous. Let's overlay it with a bit more endless complication, 50 more pages of legislation, 100 pages of guidance. Job done. Well done, chaps. Again and again and again. Good news for, for lawyers, but mm. not good news necessarily for it's, everyone else. I'm afraid that's almost the definition <laughs> of the British tax system. <laughs> but you see, we've recently changed residence, which had been a very complicated common law concept. We replaced it with a statutory residence concept that a semi-educated monkey can follow on a flowchart in, in, in about five minutes. So we've shown that you can do this. You can kiss goodbye to 200 years of complication. Let's try and have the courage to do that for domicile. Not just reform it once again, but actually chuck it away, replace it with something that's much simpler and actually does what we want it to do. We don't want to keep money out of the UK. We don't want to be a tax haven for a bunch of incredibly rich people. We want to encourage young professionals and others to move to the UK and not put obstacles in the way. Let's focus the system on that. I, I agree entirely with yeah. that. But unfortunately, I fear there is no political will in the current administration to do this. So there we are. Gypsy Rose League of, of gloom strikes well, again. Well, but <laughs> You're look always at, saying the same thing. No, no, but look at what they do. <laughs> look at what they do, not what they say. I want to focus on the upside, which is, are we to say it is a hopeful sign that you are abandoning tax law to go <laughs> do something else, Dan? <laughs> is, this, is this a sign that the complications are going to be swept away and a more simple, rational system will take its place? <laughs> or alternatively, it's so complicated <laughs> that even your mega brain can't cope with it. I love complexity. Complexity is super fun as an advisor. But we all have a love-hate relationship. We, we, we love getting into the complexity, but, but we hate the effect of the complexity. So if you did do what I suggest and scrap it all, people will grumble, but secretly, <laughs> even the lawyers. 
That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. Join us again next week.